Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Michael Brennan-Doherty, who is a senior writer at the National Review. And we're going to be talking about BuzzFeed's sensational story on Breitbart and Steve Bannon and its curious flirtation with white supremacism. So, Michael, last night, I think it was, or, or yesterday for you in America, uh, BuzzFeed released their, let's call it their WikiLeaks on Breitbart, uh, revealing all sorts of very interesting emails between Milo Yiannopoulos, a, a right-wing controversialist, and Steve Bannon, of course, uh, who everybody knows is chief strategist in the White House. Um, and it appears to create the sense of, of, of Breitbart trying to cultivate the alt-right. Um, how much of this is actually a sensational story? How much of it is just titillating for people who follow these things like you and me? So it's very titillating for people like you and me and and thousands of other journalists who I think marveled at um, the way Milo Yiannopoulos seemed to just, you know, become a vortex of attention and presumably money uh, mm. 2015 and 2016. Mm. Uh, so I think there's, there's huge Scandon Freud to be had in, in kind of seeing how the sausage is made uh, in his career about how he has a ghostwriter or some of the other details that were in this. Yes. And also how Bannon was able to make it happen for him. And as soon as Bannon lost interest, Milo's star faded pretty quickly. Right. And what's interesting, uh, you know, what is interesting about the story as far as the Bannon angle is that it confirms rumors, you know, that I've heard in a sense that, that Bannon it comes across as a crazy person. Right. He, yeah. he, he comes across as someone who or he comes across as someone who believes that aggressive online journalism can change the ideological Com, com, uh, complexion of the entire planet, right? Mm. That, you know, he, he talks about being at war and he types these kind of silly messages without proper words in them, just like the letter U and R. And uh, Yes, he comes across a bit like a child, doesn't he? I mean, like a teenager. He comes across as a millennial, as, as a... He comes across as someone in the comment section of a story. <laughs> And it confirms rumors, you know, that that political reporters in the U.S. heard that, in a sense, at the White House, uh, Stephen Bannon would just spend time in Reince Priebus's office, just on the internet all day, watching Twitter and watching what's happening, as if as if he he saw Twitter, its social media itself, as a kind of battlefield, and as him as as if he saw himself as a general. In, yes. in in a war on on this medium, uh, which you know, in a way, when you look at real world and real world power, it seems kind of pathetic. Yes, uh, but at the same time, he's doing this from the White House itself. So yes, it's sort of pathetic and also real. <laughs> yes, so it is disturbing in that way. Uh, so so I do think you know it's hard to know the stakes of the story. He's out of the White House now, although yeah. you imagine that occasionally he might be able to get the ear of uh of president trump um yeah. on, on particular stories um 
but it is it raises the question about Trump himself and the Trump presidency, which is how much of how much does media controversy translate into real life change of power? Mm. I think that that's the factor that determines whether you find this a kind of ridiculous inside media story or whether you think that there's kind of something sinister at work, right? Because Trump seems to think that media fights are more real than real life. Uh, and yeah. it seems Bannon does too. Yes. The sort of far, BuzzFeed obviously made a huge element of the white supremacist and far right element, which is part of the story. And it's a very interesting and perhaps disturbing part of the story. And I think on that, it's not actually the uh, connections to Richard Spencer or the saluting in front of Richard Spencer, which is just sort of silly more than anything. I thought the the thing that was most interesting for me was that Bannon says that um, there's a huge piece that Yiannopoulos and someone called Bukhari write together about the alt-right, and it mentions the sort of intellectual influences of the alt-right. And Bannon's response to that is any piece that mentions Evola, as in the Italian mystical fascist, is great for me. He says, uh, I, I, I appreciate any piece that mentions Evola. So, I mean, that to me is quite interesting that you had a man in the White House who is takes inspiration or perhaps sees himself as a sort of radical figure like a like a a, a 19th century fascist yeah you know and the evola thing is it, it it ties into just what we were saying which is evola is this strange writer who in a sense like everything that is interesting if you read Evola is sort of just stuff he's cribbing from ancient writers. Uh, But he does it in this way that, that sort of is self dramatizing. You know, he kind of people who are love struck with Evola typically are love struck with, in a sense, his character, this idea of a reactionary aristocrat who kind of, hides himself away and hides the truth away in a democratic age that won't tolerate him or his type. Yes. And the, the, there's, and again, it's like, do you buy that self-conception and, or do you find it just ridiculous on its face that there is something kind of silly? There's an, an, an element of play acting to it. And, um, and that, it, you know, do you, are you a sucker for buying it? And I think that's the uh, I think that's why Breitbart as a media enterprise and Stephen Bannon as a White House figure commands so much um, of our attention because we we we're tempted to dismiss them as utterly silly and pathetic one minute. And then in the next minute, we wonder if they really are what they pretend to be, these these Machiavellian kind of strange, uh, almost villainous figures uh, entering in from the set in a place we didn't know they were. So, so yes. it just and that's what that's what BuzzFeed want them to be. They want them to be this amazingly sophisticated, uh, you know, sinister fascist machine, right? Um, but then when you read the emails, you think. They're just so silly. That's what that's what I think, anyway. That's it, that's how I feel as well. So that that, but I think it it, it plays on this this uh, this fear that, um, you know, in a way, much of the mainstream media sort of they've been taken aback by the success of Breitbart 
and the success of Donald Trump. And they're groping for these explanations of how this happened. And, and the idea that it's just a bunch of kind of juvenile people indulging themselves and, mm. and pretending to be like knights of a new reactionary age that is struggling to be born. That's appealing to them. The idea that, you know, the idea that it's just a bunch of guys from the comments section well, it really makes the mainstream politics look feeble. And yes. if, if you can't beat these people, what were, what good were you? <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I, speak, I, I mean, Bannon has denied, I think, that he calls himself a Leninist. But there's definitely this sense reading the emails that they think they are part of the revolution, you know. And, and, and certainly speaking to people in the kind of Breitbart orbit, they always talk as though they are there's this sort of great revolution happening and they are the pioneers of it. And so they, I suppose they do think of themselves as, as probably communists did in the, in the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, I've been in press gaggles and, and have overheard Breitbart reporters t talking in this way that like saying, we are going to replace the New York times. We are going to replace the Washington Post with ourselves, you know, that, yes. that the, the vision is of all the institute, all the institutions in the mainstream are kind of fundamentally flawed and weak and are just on the edge of collapse. And we just have to keep pushing them and keep getting under their skin. And they're just going to collapse in this neurotic heap or in this, you know, uh, yes. internal explosion but I don't know that that's, I, you know, obviously I don't think that's actually true. And I wonder how long it can, they can keep it up. How long can they keep morale up without actually seeing, I mean, obviously they've seen Trump in the white house, but y you have to wonder. Well, I, I, I was in uh, DC last week and I, I spoke to some Trumpists and they kept saying, what you don't realize is this is bigger than this administration which is very much the way they think it's this is a revolution trump if trump doesn't make it happen that doesn't matter because we are bigger than him we're bigger than this government yeah there, i i wrote a column about a year ago at theweek.com about the esoteric case for trumpism and that in yeah. a sense you always hear this right you say, you, you you point to either his lack of accomplishments as a president and with the Congress, or you point to his obvious buffoonery, right? And then suddenly the response comes back, oh, it's not about Trump. It's not yeah. about Trump. It's about some other much larger, much bigger picture that you are too small to see the, the full features of. And like yes. it's, it's like, uh, you know... It's uh, this Hegelian idea that he's just part of some... He's like a cork bobbing on the sea of history or something. Right, exactly. And, and that there are these, these forces at work that you can participate in. But at the same time, like, like I said, you could either buy that story or you could say, you know, this whole culture of the alt-right emerged out of Gamergate. And these are yeah. people who are mistaking video games for the real world. Yeah. Then, then they're nerds, right? That's what they are. Right. That they can, that they can, in a sense, that they can type in to a game. They they can type away in a game, and the, and whole empires, you know, rise and fall mm. on on what they type into the computer screen. You know, that's that's the view of a gamer, and that seems to be the view of 
Stephen Bannon and to some degree Milo Yiannopoulos. But even if they even if they don't sort of understand what they're doing and they don't they don't quite have a they are it is a phenomenon. You know, Steve Bannon gave that speech in Alabama just before the the Senate election there two weeks ago. And that was a, I mean, I don't know if that didn't swing the election. I think Strange would have won anyway. The Tea Party-ish candidate would have won anyway. But they are, they're in the ascendancy, right, in in American politics. You know, I do think there is a sense in which um, the Bannonite politics, and and I'm not saying the explicit, uh, the the dalliances with uh, white nationalists and other racist, but the sort of anti-political correctness, anti-mainstream uh, politics is certainly on the rise. And in, in, in a sense, you know, mainstream politics, Obamaism, uh, it seems to be losing hold in the culture generally, right? Like you're mm. seeing in, you're starting to see in, you know, humor programs and mainstream magazines like more criticism of being woke, of being ultra PC. Yeah. And it feels like this other, you know, it feels like an earlier time. It feels like almost 25 years ago in the nineties where suddenly after huge gains by political correctness for half a decade or for a decade, there was suddenly this pushback. You know, and there's suddenly you, you mean sort of lad culture or, or... yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly it. Like if you look in the early '90s, there was all this talk of political correctness, and you know, should you call short people short, or should they be called vertically challenged? And there was all yeah. these odd formulations, and then suddenly, like there was tons of books denouncing this. There were tons yeah. of even you know mainstream liberals denouncing it and making fun of it. Bill Maher show politically incorrect debuts, the mm. lad mags take off like Maxim and, and there's kind of, and uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, who was, who is now kind of giving uh, left-wing political sermons on his late night talk show in the nineties, he was part of that backlash founding yeah. the man show on comedy central. So it seems like this, there's a, there's kind of a libertines backlash and, um, Breitbart is is part of that, and it is. I mean, at the risk of making a very politically correct point, God forgive me, uh, it is very male, isn't it? It's a very male universe. Yeah, it is. It, it that's right. Yeah, it feels like it, it. It feels like. I mean, I'm obviously. People can tell based on my comments. I'm obviously of the view that there's a a kind of element of role playing and and kind of silliness and and uh, that we shouldn't buy into their self-importance but it does feel like you know it does feel like a college dorm room where people have given each other exotic you know code names and and think of their adventures in real life whether like romantically or athletically as <laughs> quite a bit more consequential to the world than they really are so, <laughs> you know it just has that that feel of um of adolescence yeah well michael um we better wrap it up there but thank you very much for talking to us again and um please come on again soon thank you so much thank you very much for listening just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer 
and we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. 